Hello, you are listening to the It's Always Friday the 13th podcast. I am John Evans. I am joined by Michael T. Kuchek and Mr. Vikram Wheat. How are you, gentlemen? Wonderful. I didn't think that would be like a fastball that you guys would be, or a curveball where you'd be like, whoa, what the hell? Like, why is he asking us that? <laughs> yeah, let me give that, uh, uh, that question a little bit of thought there. <laughs> How am I doing? Well, I know we're doing very well because we're watching one of my favorite Friday the 13th movies uh, today. It's part six, Jason Lives. And for a uh, little thumbnail synopsis or introduction, uh, Mike, why don't you set the stage? All right. In Friday the 13th, part six, Jason Lives, uh, our intrepid filmmakers realized that putting the mask on another killer was not the way to go. We need the man himself, Jason Voorhees. So, uh, in the opening scene, we get a version of the dream sequence from Five, in which a couple of yahoos dig up Jason Voorhees' grave, and uh, he comes alive and starts killing everybody. In this one, we actually get it, quote-unquote, for real, within the, uh, the context of the movie world. So... Uh, Tommy Jarvis breaks out of the asylum. He's been tormented by visions of Jason Voorhees to the extent that he needs to make sure that Mr. Voorhees is in fact dead. Him and a chucklehead who came along with him drive out to the cemetery, dig him up. Uh, Mr. Jarvis uh, is so incensed by the sight of the very good-looking, extremely well-done makeup effects on Jason's corpse that uh, he decides to yank off a uh, a spike from the kind of iron railing of the cemetery and ram it into Jason's chest. And that is when the evil magic takes hold because uh, a lightning bolt strikes twice, bringing Jason Voorhees back to life. Tommy goes running, the chucklehead dies, and now we have Jason Voorhees in his undead zombie indestructible state, charging back to uh, a camp that has now been relabeled Forest Green uh, to leave behind the uh, stigma of Camp Blood Crystal Lake. Uh, Unfortunately, Jason is not so easily rewritten from their history because he is back and he is here to murder everybody. He's just a legend. Yes. <laughs> it is funny that in this movie, on multiple occasions, we get uh, older characters, parental characters, telling the teenagers, uh, Jason Voorhees, he's just a legend. He's just a legend. And uh, it, it all, it's almost reminiscent of a Nightmare on Elm Street in that sense. Uh, where, no, 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 he's just a boogeyman, X, Y, Z. But, of course, this flies directly in the face of Part 4 and Part 5, in which we have characters, you know, who are going through newspaper clippings, and everyone's referring to, you know, the massacres, the murders, you know, X, Y, Z. It's more of a Texas Chainsaw Massacre situation. But now we want to recast the idea that Jason Voorhees is just a, you know, boogeyman, a legend. But what's interesting to me, especially about Part 6 is the fact that at long last we give this character 
the supernatural power of being the boogeyman that he's always been. Right. Right. Yeah, and it also it also feels like a throwback to that. I mean, I agree that there is something logically dismissive about making him oh the legend of Jason or whatever, but it feels like a return to that campfire story element that we had earlier in the film. A lot of the elements of this movie are returns to the things that were that were uh, so good about the 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 first two films especially. It's the legend of the hockey masked killer who shows up. And it's even, in a way, it's a reflection of what Jason had become, I, I suspect by that time, in our culture. Mm-hmm. You know, that we were out in the world. It was the legend of the, the boy who died in the lake, uh, you know, and put on a hockey mask and, and, and hacked up teenagers who did drugs or had sex. Um, it seems there's a lot about this movie that's very sort of meta and self-referential. And I think yes. that that's that element of it is a part of it and probably a conscious part of it. Well, this is the first movie where we actually have characters, and I believe it's the couple with the RV, where they're like, oh, is that Jason out there? Ha, ha, ha. You know, like they're they're referencing him directly as sort of the boogeyman in the, in the night, you know, and it turns out it actually is him. But, like, we've never had characters aware of the fact that he exists unless it was, like, uh, you know, the bear hunting guy in part four or something where they had a very specific reason to know about him. At this point, it's almost like Candyman or something where, you know, like, he is that urban legend. He is the folktale. Well, I, I mean, just to throw it out there, uh, what other characters that we seen you know six times in six movies and i mean just the culture in general i know we're talking about sherlock holmes james bond which is hilarious because you brought that up a couple of podcasts ago and in this movie they actually do a riff on the opening sequence of james bond of a 007 film where jason is kind of walking by this eye socket image and throws an axe at the camera rather than like you know shooting a gun or something like that which is the bond uh it's a bond joke in this film yeah Yeah, exactly so we're you know the filmmakers are touching on the idea that this is now an iconic character that the characters even within the film are gonna go oh is that jason Voorhees out there ha 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 you know oh yeah actually it is he's surpassed frightened retard status at this point right yeah yeah. i I, the the thing that i personally like most about this installment is uh it circles back around to i mean as vic pointed out the idea that this is a campfire tale character he's the boogeyman that is referenced in the tale that the camps that the camp counselor is telling to the frightened children around the fire uh their their frightened little faces reflected in its glow you know, casting uh, glances over their shoulder into the scary and dark woods. You know, who could be out there? Ooh, it's Jason Voorhees. Uh, you know, and there's the legend of Jason Voorhees. And in this case, we're kind of combining that concept with, you know, the overall meta reaction of our real world culture and audience to these films. Absolutely. So, Vic, the uh, opening sequence, what were your thoughts about the excavation of the corpse and how? Tommy Jarvis inadvertently brings Jason back to life. I, my most startling reaction to this 
uh, and we talked about this very early on in the, the discussion of who was the most famous person to come out of a Friday the 13th movie after Kevin Bacon, because obviously Kevin Bacon is the, the, the gold medal winner in that race. Um, and I mentioned Tony Goldwyn, and mm-hmm. I would have sworn, like if you would if you would ask me to cut off one of my pinkies, I would have sworn that the guy Tommy Jarvis goes to the grave with to dig him up with is Tony Goldwyn. Mm. And I was looking at him in the van, going, "Have I just been misremembering this for all these years?" Like, um, and so I was. I was relieved at least to find Tony Goldwyn pop up later. Right. Um, you know, that I, you know, uh, but, but it was, it's just strange. The, 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 the sort of tricks that your memory plays on you that I was really sure that Tony Goldwyn got his heart punched out uh, mm-hmm. by Jason in that scene. Um, but that guy is familiar as well. Like, I think that I haven't actually checked his other credits, but I believe that I've seen that guy a lot as well. He is. If I, I I did a little bit of homework before this, I believe he was on Welcome Back, Cotter. Oh, what? Guy. Yeah, he definitely looks like that guy. Could but it be Horshack? Are you telling me that Horshack is in this movie? I believe that's Horshack. Yes. Wow. I will check. Yes. Correct. Confirmed. There you go. Damn, dude. <laughs> Holy shit, dude. Well, I'm glad that Horshack uh, was able to uh, get some work uh, after that seminal series. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so anyways but I, I mean it's it, it is a, all that said it is a scene that has stuck with me uh, uh, very much from my my earliest viewings as a uh, I assume probably a tween based on when this came out and uh, it's very effective it's a little I mean there's a sense in which it's a little cliched it's a little like oh like lightning strikes it but mm-hmm. watching it through the lens of what we've been talking about in the course of this podcast. I mean, I was struck by the, the storm, the, you know, the portents, the storm uh, uh, that brings with it, the evil of Jason Voorhees. Um, I mean, that's, there's obviously kind of a Frankenstein element to it, which is what feels a little cliched and a little hokey. Um, But as a throwback to the first film and that notion that, you know, the storm is what resurrects this evil uh, it, it actually fits very well. I think it, I think it works, and I think the the you know it, it sets the tone for what's going to be a very successful reboot of the franchise. Yeah, that, that's an interesting point. Like the idea that all along the rain has kind of been passively a portent of mayhem, and in this film, it directly takes a hand in what happens, and it assumes responsibility like it literally is the fact that it's a thunderstorm like almost the hand of god reaches down and resurrects jason mm-hmm. in this i film. think uh, specifically we we get a, a lightning bolt that strikes twice in the same place to resurrect yeah. him and yeah. then when tommy tries to set jason on fire with some gasoline and he pulls out a pack of matches and the rain comes down and puts out the match and we're yeah. instantly told that the storm is on Jason's side. Yeah. Right, right. Which it kind of always has been, you know? Right. Like, it's just now it's really moving out of the shadows to support him in some way. Yeah, the, my main problem with this uh, sequence is just that, you know, if Tommy had just left well en- enough alone, you know, everything would have been fine. But the fact that he feels the need to do this and he, 
you know, not only digs him up, but he, he ramps a, a long piece of uh, metal into the uh, body, creating a, you know, a goddamn lightning rod, uh, mm. essentially. It's like he's begging for this to happen on some level. Well, and he, he's so yeah, responsible. That's absolutely true. I, you know, it did occur to me, though, that I, you know, from five, you know, it's, we're introduced to the idea that there's kind of a Jason Voorhees spirit. You know, something that he uh, sees and sometimes it's a hallucination, la, la, la. I, when he's driving to the cemetery at the top of six, he's telling Horshack that he has to do this because he's been menaced by hallucinations. Yeah. And he has to, I wonder if it's not the Jason Voorhees spirit reaching out to him from beyond the grave, tormenting him to the extent that wow. he will go down this extremely illogical path to create this very specific tableau. Yeah. You know, I, I wonder if, you know, it's not, you know, the cold hand of Jason's spirit isn't plucking in the psyche of a damaged young man. That's cool. That? Yeah, the idea that it is uh, baiting him, you know, mercilessly. So he he's just like, there. there's only one way that I can rest in this scenario it's like to to do this and he's being coldly manipulated and you could say that maybe it's jason and if you want to you know take a step back and look at the larger mythology you know possibly it's the lake you know possibly yeah. it's just that larger evil that is manipulating him in this situation I would say that, yeah I, I would say that tommy is no more blameless than jack torrance and the overlook hotel Right. I think that's possible, but one of the things I think that 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 feels, and again, I don't want to, I don't want to undercut this film too much because I do think it's largely successful. So do I. Um, but uh, one of the things that I think supports John's reading of this uh, initial reading, anyway, is that uh, they really pick and choose what they want from the fifth film and leave behind. There's no addressing the cliffhanger at the end. That's right. Um, that's right. There's no, you know, it's, they sort of go, well, like, yes, he's having hallucinations. Yes, he still has the mask. But no, we never killed Pam, and we're never going to see Pam, and we're never going to see Reggie, and we're just going to leave the stuff that we don't want, we're going to leave behind. We're going to take the stuff that we need, because really, we just have to get Jason back. And it's, there's a sense in which I'm, I'm very forgiving of the film, because you do need Jason back. Um, and so if you have to, if you have to twist my arm a little bit to get Jason, to get Tommy out there and stabbing him with the thing and it, it fits with this psychology enough that I'm, I'm on board if it gets us again past the first five minutes so that we've got Jason back. Uh, and we, and we've set the ball rolling for the franchise going forward. It just does stick in my craw that he's so utterly responsible for everything that happens. And the movie doesn't truly wrestle with that like it doesn't get much mileage out of the concept that i am responsible for everything that happens from here on like he's acting like it's just well jason's back man and we got to stop him and you know kind of ignoring the long chain of events that results in this resurrection and he is responsible for every single step of that path like if he had just stayed the fuck out of here nothing would have happened and jason would have remained in the ground but like it 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 just kind of plays 
fast and loose with that element of it instead of owning it and being like, this movie is about Tommy dealing with the guilt of what he has done by bringing Jason back, which I think would have been pretty compelling. What's interesting is uh, the game that this movie plays is uh, the cops are convinced that Tommy is uh, the killer or at, at the very least has a hand in it because he's a crazy guy who broke out of the asylum and uh, he wants the murders going on to be, uh, he wants to convince so everyone that Jason is back so thoroughly that he's going to go around and, and create murdered victims and go, oh, look, Jason did that. And uh, ironically enough, they're wrong. So, I mean, in terms of like the justice system, he is innocent, but in terms of the larger morality, he's very guilty. Yes. Well, and it's an interesting twist. I mean, five, I feel like, you know, twisted itself into pretzels to convince us, the audience, that Tommy was actually the killer, you know, only to reveal this, you know, what was supposed to be, uh, you know, a great surprise that it was actually Roy, the, the ambulance driver. And in this film, you know, and none of which, none of which worked, by the way, in five, uh, no. none of the characters ever addressed the idea that maybe Tommy was the killer or anything else. Um, and in this film, all the characters are convinced that Tommy is the killer, and we, the audience, are privy to the fact that obviously it's not Tommy because we know that Jason has been resurrected. It's not a game at all. You know, yeah, there is no, no game. There's, there's no sense of a whodunit or, right. or you know. Um, it's very clear to us. I mean, it it just basically functions as obstacles for Tommy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I do think the film functions well as like that kind of classical. Uh, putting the hero in difficult situations that he has to be resourceful and he requires allies, namely the lovely Megan. Oh, uh, she's a delight. To, yes, yes, to which, help which him. Which is almost a problem. I mean, A, like that's one of the things that this film does successfully in getting back to the stuff that, that made the earlier films work so well is that Megan is, a, you know, a plucky, interesting heroine. Uh, which we haven't had uh, really since the, since the second film. You know, Tommy is is not as a as a hero. I'm less interested in him. Um, I mean, it's you can you can talk yourself into a situation where you understand why Megan is attracted to the bad guy, uh, why she buys into a lot of the stuff that that he says. But I remember thinking very distinctly when he calls her. I don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves, but when he calls her uh, at the police station, says. Jason, you don't understand. Jason's coming. We got to blah, blah, blah. And I was like, he's still ranting about Jason. And she's like, I believe you. And I'm going to come get you. She is the true heroine of this movie. Exactly. And, and, you know, exactly. Yeah. yeah. yeah I, I, it's a movie that doesn't quite have a, have a final girl. Uh, if anything, uh, Tommy is our final girl in a, in a way because I, I mostly because he's kind of assumes the Ellen Ripley role of this franchise. But, um, you know, she's. I will have to say that uh, she is, as an actress, the most uh, engaging and interesting and personable character that I've seen since uh, that girl who we opened with in part one. Yeah, I mean, I think Amy Steele is definitely a, a parallel, you know, Ginny from part two. Uh, but yeah, this girl has more that I, I think that in her persona, it's more that kind of bubbly, open, you know, kind of. Um, th- she's got the positivity. This girl of of that girl, you know, she's and got I, spunk. I, yeah, she's spunky as hell. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, and she's she's delightful. And I think that that quality 
carries a lot of this film because Tom Matthews, uh, we should talk about the actor that plays Tommy Jarvis. Now, this is a guy that another uh, alum of uh, one of the greatest zombie comedies ever made, uh, Return of the Living Dead. Uh, he's one of the co-leads in that film. But like, there are moments in this where he's kind of cringingly bad when he's earnest. And this girl sells a lot of bad dialogue because I think that this film continues the tradition of Friday the 13th films having really wooden, kind of corny, dated dialogue. But um, she does a really nice job with everything that she's given. And I think that she's kind of the uh, center of this film in a way that he is not, even though I think that it's cool that the film balances between those two co-leads and gives each of them their sort of moments to shine as far as being heroes versus Jason. Yeah. You can see why they left uh, Tommy Jarvis behind after this yeah. film. Um, I frankly, of all the things to pick and choose from uh, uh, the fifth film to carry on with this one, it's a little sad that he lost the Kung Fu, you know? <laughs> yeah. No uh, kidding. Uh, I agree. No, like, yeah. No if, if, say again. No martial arts training. And uh, guys, by the way, uh, for our listeners at home, yeah. Somebody's cracking a beer. That's me. (laughs) That was either you cracking a beer or Jason snapping your neck. So I'm glad that you're still with us. (laughs) Three dudes do not hang around and talk about Friday the 13th movies without a beer in their hand. I am currently drinking a beer. That is true. Good man. God damn it. I don't have one. <laughs> what the hell? <laughs> All Put right. the green tea down. <laughs> I have a smoothie. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> All right. So let's um, try to go more or less chronologically. We have the um, resurrection scene. The, the thing that I love most about that scene is uh, the supernatural subtext that the three of us have been kind of touching on for the past five episodes is at long last brought to the fore. We're told this is evil magic. There is an evil thing hanging around. And Five kind of towed the line, and this is the one where subtext becomes text. He's a zombie. This is evil magic. You know, pull the trigger, go the races. Yeah, I I really like that kind of shot where he's just standing there staring at, at Tommy, And it kind of establishes one of the cool things about this particular Jason is that in four, you know, we were talking about kinetic killing and everything. Jason's in a hurry. You know, he has this sort of, uh, he rages very close to the surface. This is the film where it's like, eh, I'm dead. You know, I have nothing to lose. He has a patience in this film. He toys with people to a, really almost inordinate level. Like he's in no rush to do anything in this movie, but I like it because there's something very sinister about it. Like it's all very cruel. Yeah, it sets, but it does. I think this is the film that sets really the cliche of the people running and Jason walking behind them. There's there's numerous shots of running legs followed by walking legs you know, which we get to very again very early. I think that I believe we have Tommy running into the the sheriff's station, meeting the daughter. The inexplicable attraction between them, uh, which she does a much better job of selling than than he does. Yeah. Um, 
but very quickly we get to the 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 uh, engaged right it's the couple that's engaged that's out sort of making out of the woods and then the, the uh, fiance sees the sees Jason and and the two of them running to the motorcycle they get on the motorcycle and like inexplicably like just just bending every rule of time and space Jason is suddenly in front of them and impaled from both yeah um, yeah this is where it, Jason begins teleporting you exactly. know <laughs> that's the, that is the I mean that that is what this film established that we again when we think of the uh, the, the cliches when you think of Jason just as he sort of exists as an icon in the culture, you think of that, that Jason walks 10 times faster than everybody else runs. And I think this film is where that comes from. This is a franchise that's very interested in footwear, I've noticed. <laughs> cameras all, yeah, the camera's always lingering on legs and shoes. Yeah, it has a foot fetish. That's obvious. <laughs> <laughs> like... Friday the foot fetish. Yeah, yeah. but... Yeah. So, uh we've we've we're playing games with uh the sheriff Garris who I believe this is one of those films where they're intentionally naming things because we have a Karloff's general store and we have a town called Carpenter and Sheriff Garris and that's very uh eyeball rolling uh wince inducing type stuff. Yeah, this is uh if there's one thing that really stands out about this installment in the franchise is a uh we get zombie jason and over supernatural evil and b uh this one has zero interest in actually scaring the audience uh there there's almost no effort put into actually creating uh dread or suspense it's mostly a straight up action horror comedy uh that's mm-hmm. i've noticed that it's uh, it kind of shares with three and five, uh, kind of the very stiff, uh, script, extremely scripty dialogue and writing. Uh, and it's also very uh, shooty. You know, uh, it, it, it's way more like a music video than anything else. Uh, and that I mean, occasionally looks really cool. Uh, I would say that the opening shots with just a, uh, a forest that's filled with mist. I uh, do a great job of immediately establishing this movie isn't going to suck. You know, yeah. I mean, it looks, it looks cool. Uh, but I mean, from that point forward, it's mostly a movie that's interested in making a theater full of teenagers go, Whoa! you know, yeah. <laughs> Laugh and shudder and grip each other, grip their dates arm. And, you know, like it, this is very much a popcorn film. Yeah, exactly. It's like, I, I mean, I, I don't think that anything is particularly scary about this movie, and I don't think that anything is really meant to be. I, there are moments here and there, but they're very slender. I mean, mostly this is a crowd-pleasing, popcorn-y, you know, do those fucking sick, you know, kind of movie. Yeah, yeah, it's not truly nerve-jangling. Vic, what's your opinion on that? I mean, I think that's true, but I also think that this film, uh, as 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 much if not more so than any of the others makes use of Jason's visage. I mean, yeah. again, we've, we've talked about at this point, Jason has become kind of an icon outside of the movie theater. Um, and again, those we talk in the fifth film, we talked about it just with sort of those singular shots of Jason sitting up in his grave and approaching, you know, the Tommy, Corey, Corey Feldman. Yeah. Um, 
But uh, in this film, there's a, there's a lot of images where Jason just walks into frame or turns towards the camera that it's like, look, like we've got a creepy image that is zombie Jason in a hockey mask. And they make use of that, I, I felt, very, uh, very successfully. That, well, my that- favorite scene in this whole movie is the RV scene uh, where you have the couple. I believe the guy's name is Court and mm-hmm. his right. girlfriend. And like they, they are very effective as sort of these comic uh, characters. And we can double back to it. But the reason I want to bring it up is just that when the thing – the RV crashes and skids on the road and turns on its side. And it's very action movie. And Jason climbs out through the door and stands on top of it. And I think actually maybe Mike mentioned this offhandedly last week, but like he just stands there and it's sort of like in a commercial, like the hero shot of the burger or the car or whatever it is you're selling. It's just like, yeah, there it that's is. A, like this smoke billowing around him. That's John. That's exactly what I'm talking about. It's yeah. Jason yeah. with, you know, walking through the smoke on top of that. Like it's, yeah. I mean, it, you know, it's, it's Jason is an iconic image. Yeah. I, the, the, this is, perhaps the first movie that becomes uh, not only overt about uh, the supernatural aspect, but overt about the fact that we're here to see Jason Voorhees look cool and do cool stuff, right. you know, like stand, stand on top of a flaming RV and look awesome. And uh, we, we have not one, but two fire gags in this movie. We have that one. And then at the very end when he faces off with Tommy and uh, we've got the flames in the water, you know, I mean, it's it's uh yeah, I mean, we're we want to see Jason Voorhees look cool, yeah. Uh, and, and and in that sense, uh, he truly comes into his own as not only an iconic figure and a legend, but also uh, more of a supervillain than anything else. I uh, you know yes. he's light years from you know the Jason Voorhees we saw in part two, in which he's basically like an eighteen year old kid with a sack on his head. Who gets knocked out if you trip him with a chair? You yeah. know, uh, he's you know, and uh, Jason uh, or Jason, John, you pointed out that uh, it looks like Jason has only one eye in this yeah. movie, and the last time we had uh, Jason Voorhees uh, peering at us through one eye was two, right. when he he the frightened retard in the woods had only the wherewithal to cut uh, a single hole into his sack. I don't remember him actually losing his eye. Maybe I've missed something, but it's pretty clear he has one eye in this movie. Maybe just like the bugs ate it or something. But Vic, you mentioned his visage, and this is the only film where we don't really ever get a good look at his face. I mean, you can kind of see it early on, but like we're – this isn't the movie where you get that like – big reveal of his face at the end you know he he wears the mask to the very end that's true yeah i mean the closest i I mean uh, in previous installments you know at some point in time the mask would come off we would see the galoot underneath uh and in this one uh you know i I think again the filmmakers are like we don't care about the galoot you know it's just the mask it's just the mask nobody cares you know we're not gonna be frightened by anything underneath it we already saw he's a zombie whatever yeah even though i think they get mileage out of that in the next film but uh, we'll get to that in good time so let's talk about uh sort of the the middle of the film where this film like i was gonna say um it breaks from a lot of traditions of the series like we don't have that 
long portion of the movie where we're just watching the teenagers, you know, trying to hook up and they're going through their dramas. Like this movie really is structured very differently. We don't spend a lot of time on them wandering around in the woods, calling each other's names or anything like that. Like it really plays out very differently than previous films. I think that's true. I mean, it's, and that's, that's the advantage of, of, bringing back Tommy Jarvis for yeah. one more go around is that he is, he has told us and told everyone from the get go, Jason is back. Yeah, um, yeah. And so there's not a lot of sort of meandering around and blah, 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 blah. Um, and one of the things I, I read in, in doing research about the film is that the, the director uh, had initially wanted 13 deaths in the film and hmm. he interpreted it that way. And they felt there wasn't enough. And so they made him add three more. Uh, hmm. And so the, the three that wound up being added were the, the, the couple in the, in the woods and the grave digger. Um, and so that, that really permeates the first act of this film with just nonstop sort of carnage. Um, and you're right. that There's no love interest for uh, either of the, the, the two girls that are, that are left. I mean, it's really just Tommy and Megan and, you know, a lot of cannon fodder. I'm not sure that makes it better. I think it, it actually probably would have, when I, when I, what I've read about the, the alternate versions and what the, the director really wanted to do with the film, Tom McLaughlin is the, the writer-director. Uh, a lot of what he wanted to do with the film actually sounds more interesting to me, but you're right. It's, a, it's very different. It feels very different almost from the word go. Well, it's partially just because we're very focused on a protagonist in this film. You know, yeah. it doesn't make any pretense of being an ensemble where, oh, well, this person happens to survive, so we're going to focus more. You know, exactly. even though like uh, Ginny in part two got, has the heroic intro and sort of, you know, our attention is focused on her. We spend a ton of time with the subplots of the other characters. Like, this is very much Tommy's movie, you know, yeah. with Megan being a key part of that story. And so everyone else feels like cannon fodder very much in the way that part five does. But I think that it does a much better job of making those individual episodes uh, at least funny, if nothing else. Like, mm -hmm. with uh, Tony Goldwyn and his girlfriend, like, it's a very comical sequence when they're driving this beetle and he's standing there in front of them and they're debating what to do and even like the way it plays out and she's like offering jason money and her american express card is is funny you know? <laughs> yeah, it's like in one of the most inexplicable things i've ever seen Product in placement. any of these movies is when uh she is you know i, I again john i knew you're talking uh, earlier we were talking about jason's patience yeah. And in earlier movies, he would have just slaughtered her. But uh, when she falls backwards into the muddy puddle and she uh, she digs out her wallet and offers cash and uh, and her credit card, you know, uh, you know, please go away. Just take my money. It's fine. And he's not there. You know, uh, he has decided to kind of sneak around behind Jason, her. Jason is so offended 
by this offer of cash and credit cards that he leaves. Yeah, but yeah, exactly. <laughs> he, he, he just gets it out. But, Maybe I, a he, Starbucks he, gift card would have yeah, had a better but effect. He, he sneaks around behind her and uh, stabs her through the mouth. And uh, then the her, her American Express card falls into the muddy water. And the camera lingers on that shot for a really long time. Yeah. <laughs> well, but I found myself thinking, I mean, it, 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 we've talked a lot about the, the dynamic of the the counselors. I mean, Paul is still the apex of like the guy that you want leading this group into the woods and whatever. But Megan and Sissy and, and Paula, like they seem so oblivious of what to do. That I thought, like, how much difference would these two people have made? Like, these right. campers seem like they were they were kind of screwed no matter what. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, they they do make a fact uh, a point of the teenagers are cast adrift when mm-hmm. the adults don't show up. Like, they go to the police station, we don't know where they are, and then when they go back to the camp and the kids show up, like they're freaked out. Yeah, they yeah. don't even feel ready to handle the kids, let alone mm-hmm. Jason or anything else, you know. Right. Yeah. I mean, um it this is a movie that is really having fun with the tropes of the series, you know, like there's a lot of tongue-in-cheek stuff in this film that doesn't ever truly go too far. Like there was never a moment where I'm like you're making a farce of this. Yeah. And I think that's part of why I love this film, even though I agree with Mike that it's not that scary ever. It's not even that suspenseful, except for like the odd moment or two where they decide to draw something out. You know, mm-hmm. it it's just that it's consistently clever enough and entertaining enough, even in a very winky way that like I'm kind of delighted by it. And I want to double back to that that couple uh, in the RV, like I find it genuinely funny when he's like he wants to come and she won't let him, and like he's like, oh well, the music—that's the end of the song. And she's yeah. like berating him <laughs> for having orgasmed. Like, there's a lot of really funny stuff in this film. Yeah, we're we're, we're introduced to those two characters with her riding on him and going, "This is the best. This is the best." And it's like it's like they know that they're in a music video. You know, it, it's uh, interesting that scene because this is uh, the other departure about six is this is a, an extraordinarily chaste movie. Um, right. You know, we don't get any tits at all. There's none of the there's none of the overt nudity. There's none of the overt sexuality that we saw in the first five movies. Uh, in this one, like the closest we get are two fully clothed characters uh, having sex and making a joke about it. And uh, earlier on, uh, we have the the two adult counselors who um, they're having a moonlight picnic with champagne and uh, she proposes sex. And the guy actually jokingly uh, says, I don't know. And he's, he, he even has a funny line about it. He goes, it's a messy act. You know, it's like, <laughs> right. and uh, I, the closest thing that we have to actual on-screen romance is uh, when Tommy uh, kisses Megan through the the jail bars. You know, right. so it, it, and even that isn't, you know, it isn't like the, you know, just raw teen sexuality no. from the earlier movies. I, I mean, that's like a sweet romance. It, it's a hero beat. 
Yeah. You know, it's a romance beat. It's not I, like, you know, it's Friday the 13th. I and mean, of course, there's suits, there's, there's gore, there's a cycle with a mask, blah. You know, it's like I, we've actually broken away from that for, again, you know, action, horror, comedy. Well, but, you know, Mike, the other, I actually, the other sort of, for, for, for this film, intensely sexual scene is there is the scene when when Megan is racing away from the cops with Tommy and forces yes. his head into her, her lap and we are treated to a number of shots of her just of her her crotch even though it's in jeans yeah um, we, we we get not one but two pov shots of yeah. Tommy staring uh, eyeball to crotch you know what yes. that reminded me of the breakfast club I had exactly uh, the same thought. Yes, guys, l- l- let's also just broach this. Uh, there's a beat in which they tear off in her was that Corvette, and uh, it looks really like the courtyard, uh, the street from Back to the Future. Yeah, there's like a clock tower in the background that looks yeah. very much like the yeah. Universal lot. But this is a Paramount movie, so I don't know. True, but. I don't know. Uh, I, that, that that feels like a homework assignment. I'm going to find out. Yeah, we'll look into that. We will look into that. Yeah, I mean, Jason in this film with his kills, like, let's talk about that. Like, his approach, we've discussed the fact that he he's very toying, and he does a lot of just standing and looking at you in this film. Uh, he's There's no urgency, but... Uh, when he does act, like occasionally there's tremendous uh, savagery to it. And I'm thinking about the girl where we don't even see it happen, but you can kind of tell that he's mauling her like a bear yeah. in the cabin. Well, uh, and, yeah. and we get the aftermath of it, which is very much an upping of the ante from the slightly bloody axe in the bed in part one and the bloody sheets in part two. And now we have a cabin that's just painted in blood all around, uh, which was is one of the more disturbing or unsettling images in the film for me. Yeah, I, I, I would say that that is actually one of the uh, two, uh, you know, simply, you know, only two or three things in this entire movie that actually registered as horror movie. The character is Paula. He goes into the cabin, and uh, this is one that in which she's murdered off screen. We just hear her screams. And then, uh, unlike Thor, in which uh, people were going through windows constantly, only one person goes through a window in this one, and that's when uh, Jason is mauling her. Uh, and he throws her through a window, but she doesn't go all the way through. He, he pulls her back in. And I don't think we ever even see her body. We just see, uh, you know, not one, not oh, once, but twice, characters look into the cabin where she was killed and just see a place that's completely drenched in gore. And it's like, holy fuck, you know? It's yeah, like- there was something cool about that in that, like, normally Jason or his mother will throw a body through the window in order to terrorize someone in the room. Right. And in this, he just kind of throws her out in the process of mauling her like a bear yeah, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. and pulls her immediately back in, you know, yeah. it's just like, it's just a side effect of, you know, whipping her around like a chunk of meat 
in his yeah. jaws. Yeah, you know? that's that's a one. You know, one of that's the good. only two murders in this whole movie that that felt like damn. Well, and there's there's one of the things that I really appreciate about this film is there is especially by the time you get to five, there is this sense of like Jason just shows up with an axe or a pair of shears or a belt or like whatever kind of crazy implement he needs to create the most violent death possible. And in this film, they're, they're very conscious of, all right, what does Jason have? What does he have access to? Where does he get the machete? So we see where he gets the machete with that. The one, I would say by far the most, the most cartoony aspect of this is the, uh, the, the uh, employee retreat, um, for those of you who are listening who haven't just seen the movie, we have a paintball extended sequence where you have a bunch of, I think they're accountants, and they're on this sort of company paintball excursion in the woods. And you're right, Vic, it, it's extremely broad, uh, like part five broad in their sort of you know stereotypes that we're playing with there. But the one thing I do like about that little uh interlude is when he decapitates three people at the same time like that is vintage jason that's true and well and i think there's something to be said about that scene is you have these i don't want to say misogynist but these you know this kind of couple oh, they of, are yeah you know misogynist maybe is the right word but you know it's that they're the the in the the mini drama that takes place it is the woman and an older woman at that who bests the two guys um, and yeah. emerges as the victor. Now that doesn't, you know, gain her any credence with Jason. I sort of, you hope that that maybe that means she's going to at least get to run away. Just getting back to it, there's a lot of attention paid to what implements does Jason have to commit the murders. Uh, uh, you know, it, it gives it a feeling of groundedness in spite of this overwhelming uh, supernatural element that's been introduced. Yeah, you you know, uh, two things I noticed in this movie, uh, they're they're very small in and of themselves, but kind of plug into this thought that you're exploring. Uh, one, I noticed that Jason has a something like a tool belt in this one. Yeah, uh, where did that came from? Yeah, and uh, he does draw like a really savage looking knife. Uh, I'm not absolutely sure where he got it, but he's got this belt, and uh, we're just like, ah, you know, he's a killer. He's got. Yeah, have a tool belt. Uh, and the other one was uh, there's an early shot in which um, during the day we just see Jason, zombie Jason. He is an undead being with a hockey mask on just kind of walking through the woods. And he's on the way to somewhere like uh, this is actually uh, one of the situations where he doesn't teleport. We actually yeah, just we see have the guy, you know, he's, he's just kind of traveling. We have a <laughs> lot of striding purposefully in this film from Jason, which is one of the things that I love about Jason is that he, you know, he can walk with like this great intensity that is just cool to behold. And this movie, I think really nails that. But um, one of the things that I also love about this Jason and how, what he represents in the context of this series is this is the first time that people unload ammunition into him and we just totally get it out of the way. Can you shoot Jason and that stop him? Uh-uh. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, 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 exactly. Uh, on multiple occasions, uh, people shoot him, and uh, he he looks on short. In fact, uh, later in the movie, uh, Garrus, 
uh, shoots him with a shotgun. And uh, the impact of a shotgun slug at point blank range is enough to knock him down. Uh, but then the cop drops the shotgun and pulls out his pistol, and that does nothing to him. Well, one of the things, actually, that I thought watching this, and I, it's interesting because I think it's something we're going to build to in Part 7, is there is this sense in which the further the series goes, the more we want to see a real... Uh, competition for jason you know what i mean that one yeah, of introduced in four introduced in exactly four. introduced introduced in four in particular and and uh with yeah with the bear hunter uh quote unquote but you know and so when you watch garris in this film you know it's the first time that a, that a competent police officer gets a legitimate run in jason um and you sort of set it up as like all right well what's what's this gonna happen What's going to happen? What's this going to mean? How is Jason going to deal with someone who is smart and not afraid and has some some firepower at his disposal? Uh, and of course, the answer is it doesn't do anything. Um, but I think it it sets a bar where the franchise is going to have to up the ante in terms of, well, who's going to stand up to Jason? How are we going to how are we going to raise the level? Is it you know beyond just a a competent heroine? Um, and Tommy Jarvis does, I think, much of the same thing in this film. Um, yeah, Tommy is playing the role that we've wanted to see from the the bear hunter guy. Mm-hmm. You know, the the idea of someone who knows what he's up against and is going to be resourceful and is going to be a formidable adversary for Jason. And between the three of those characters, you know, the Garrus uh, father, daughter, and then Tommy, like, yeah, I mean, they are not just haplessly, uh, you know, well, uh, I'm going to break a chair over your back and then run away. Like, they are yeah. actively giving him a hard time. But the great thing is that everybody's moved up a weight class in this film. Yeah. Like, Jason is way more formidable in this film. And I do want to say that the way that it's shot when uh, he kills Sheriff Garris is is kind of subtle. Like, it's almost like we're dealing with mpaa issues again in this film but you kind of can clearly see that he folds him backwards like a suitcase and it's horrible it's horrible the way he kills him yeah i i that was uh the (laughs) other death that i actually emotionally felt in this movie was uh, i mean not only does he die in a really inexplicable and 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 atrocious manner but also, you know, the fact that Jason, uh, you know, he dies because Jason is stalking toward the camp where Megan, his daughter, with whom he has like kind of a cantankerous relationship. Uh, they spend the entire movie bickering and, and kind of jousting verbally. And uh, it's mentioned in passing that, uh, you know, mom had died when she was younger. He's a little overprotective, uh, you know, X, Y, Z, and that causes friction in the father-daughter relationship. But when a zombie psycho killer is stalking his way toward the camp where his daughter is, uh, this guy, without a thought of his own safety, leaps out of his hiding place and says, no, you're not, or something along those lines, and tackles this guy uh, purely to buy her time. He dies in protection of his child. And uh, I, I, I haven't found like a, an emotional plucking of strings like that since, uh, you know, the character who was in the wheelchair and too, yeah. you know, who I was really behind that guy and to watch him die. I was like, God damn it. You know, it's like, 
you know, I mean, especially in five and six, we get these massive ensembles of, you know, broad and meaningless characters, many of whom are kind of introduced in a scene and then immediately dispatched, you know, like the paintball people. Yeah, I mean, that entire sequence feels like it was almost lifted out of like a police academy movie. Yeah, <laughs> right. and, but, you know, but oh, but in this version, they just get murdered by Jason Voorhees. You know, but I mean, Garrus, that death, I was like, Ugh, damn, you know. And in, and in his defense, as a as a father, albeit to a son, like I, I do see, you know. Her her relationship with Tommy that would make me uncomfortable, you know? Like, the guy who comes in, yeah. the, the, the you know, the guy who murdered Jason Voorhees and then comes in raving about Jason Voorhees being back over and over and over again. Now, I do notice one of the things that I found amusing in the film is his just unmitigated willingness to shoot Tommy Jarvis. <laughs> like, you know, at every moment, he's like, listen, like, just so you know, I will shoot you in the fucking face. Yeah. And we get that the first time. All Tommy does is, like, enter the police station yeah. in too much of a hurry, and he draws down on him. Yeah. Like, yeah. he's yeah, ready yeah, to yeah. plug him. I will paint your place, this place in your brains, boy. Yeah, it's like, <laughs> I, 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 this, this entire movie is burdened with a script that is uh, too clever by half. It's like, no one can just say anything. Yeah, you know, it's, it's funny like though, I, this is the first time it's written and directed by the same person. Like yeah, it's that's... a unified vision. And weirdly, I mean, I would argue that on in several ways it's better directed than it is written. So, but yeah. it's the same guy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I agree with that. It, it is. I, I will have to say, I, I mean, just in terms of the uh, the the time frame, this movie came out in 1986, which uh, was a deeply important year in our culture. Let's kind of dovetail around to the soundtrack. In this movie, we have uh, Alice Cooper, who uh, who uh, introduces... Uh, he has one song called... Uh, the Man Behind the Mask. Yeah, there's The Man Behind the Mask. Uh, but also dreadful, by the way. Yeah, uh, it's not his best <laughs> song. Uh, no. But I, I distinctly remember that there was a song called uh, Scream Until You Like It. That had mm-hmm. a music video that played on uh, Headbangers Ball for a long time, and uh, during the RV sequence, I and the kid who's driving the RV doesn't notice that his girlfriend is getting banged around in the back because uh, he cranks up the stereo because uh, it, it's be- Teenage Frankenstein. Is That's what it is, and yeah. it and. It's interesting. I mean, 1986 is also the year in which uh, Slayer's Rain and Blood comes out and Metallica's Master of Puppets. So I, I, we're, we're seeing, you know, kind of a, an old school metal is at work. You know, it, it, it's kind of the sensibility of let's get a heavy metal guy like Alice Cooper, you know, uh, at the same time that they have absolutely no idea that there's this massive tech technology shift going on in, in the music at the moment. So, I mean, again, like throughout, I mean, there's kind of like a, uh, an elder sensibility. You know, it, it's a 55-year-old guy kind of squinting and figuring out what the kids are into these days. Which is true of all of these films in yeah. differing ways. Like, it always feels like 
this is not a series where they get like a young David Fincher or something, you know, and they're like, Hey, music video director, why don't you take a a shot at the controls? Like all of these films feel like they're being handed to these old journeyman writers and directors, often who are dead by the time the next movie gets. (laughs) (laughs) I will say that I, mean, if they're the best thing that could ever happen to this franchise is uh, were it to be rebooted or sequeled or whatever the fuck, uh, if they actually handed it to people who were under the age of 30. Yes. For once! <laughs> Interestingly, and John, I, I, you're usually the one who provides our, our production uh, and, and writing history on these films, so I don't want to step on your toes, but I did read that this the, 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 the director, the guy who did this, um, Tom McLaughlin, uh, had done a a reasonably successful horror film called One Dark Night, which I've never seen. Mm-hmm. Um, but that based on that, and he was apparently peddling comedies around Hollywood in the wake of this, uh, and that it was that combination of somebody who who could write and direct a, a successful horror film, but was also really interested in comedies, what attracted the producers to him, and they really sort of gave him carte blanche with what to do with, with revitalizing the story provided that he brought Jason Voorhees back to life. And yeah, so I, mean, I, I must that... confess I had a very busy week and I haven't even, uh, as we record this finished editing our last one. Um, so I didn't get to do a lot of uh, research, but it feels like that's sort of their, they're pursuing the impulse that we're yeah. discussing. Um, and he does, he does go on to, I mean, he's, he continues to be a working director, mostly with TV movies and stuff, but it's, you know, when you, when you look at a lot of the franchise, especially like part five and some of the other films, the, they're dead ends. Yeah. You know what I mean? There's not a lot of people who emerged from those and went on to continue working and have sort of successful careers. And Tom McLaughlin, one of the people who went on was an, an Emmy nominee for one of his TV movies and, and, and uh, has done a lot of television and stuff like I think this film speaks to his skills. Like there's a reason that that guy is still out there uh, doing decent, decent work here and there. That's a perfect segue Vic, because like one of the points that I haven't yet made that I really wanted to is that I think this film is a really solid movie overall. And like, we've talked about the illogical character behaviors in like part four, which many people love that film but on many levels like just it it's a sloppy somewhat senseless film and just as a movie like i'm not going to say that this one is airtight by any means but it is extremely competent in every basic regard you know like yeah. everything makes sense you know why people are doing what they're doing it 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 feels like it almost transcends the series and that like this could be a decent movie if it wasn't Jason, you know, mm-hmm. like it, it just is a entertaining horror film that happens to be a Friday the 13th movie. Yeah. Uh, overall, I mean, it feels like a really competent music video. Uh, I mean, it's very scripty. It's very shooty, but this is also like very clearly a movie made by professionals and uh, guys. Yeah, wow. there we go. Uh oh, it's a it's a two beer podcast. <laughs> uh oh, Katie, bar the door. 
<laughs> uh, guys, let's talk about the Bears because I mean, if there's yeah. one thing that uh, we have unearthed in our discussions of the series, it's the uh, the bear motif. You know, guys, and, if I haven't listened to some of the other wonderful Friday the Thirteenth podcasts yet, but I'm going to. If they talk about the Bears, I'm going to be very upset because I do believe, Mike, that you're right. <laughs> I think the Bears—that's our thing. <laughs> that's what, that, that, that is going to be on our headstones when Tommy Jarvis is digging us up. Uh, <laughs> it's going to be in our Wikipedia. Yeah, the first they, they people figured... to uh, notice the heavy <laughs> yeah, the... bear symbolism in the Friday the Thirteenth series. <laughs> bear, <laughs> the bear symbolism in the Friday Thirteenth movies. At long last, our fine and pricey uh, film education degrees have paid off. Uh, <laughs> so let's talk about it. Let's, More oh, oh. bear references. Okay. Uh, in this movie, we have not one but two bear references. The first one is uh, when the two characters are in the RV and the power goes out. Uh, again, yep. uh, we dovetail back to the idea that Jason, uh, like in the first two movies, is very concerned with cutting off the phones and power. We actually see him do, do this on multiple occasions. Uh, and in this case, he cuts off the power to the RV. The lights go out while the characters are fucking. The girl says, hey, go outside and uh, check. And uh, the guy is like, I, I, what could have done that? You know, it, it, the topic of conversation is what could have pulled the, uh, the plug out of the socket? And it comes up that maybe it was a bear. Maybe a bear tripped over it. And that's actually why the guy uh, kind of jokes about Jason Voorhees. He seems very cautious when he goes outside because, yeah. I mean, again, it's like, I, 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 I why doesn't he just kind of like wander and go dum da dum, plug it back in? Because again, I want to hold on uh, one second. Like we've gotten to the point in part six that it's like maybe it was a bear, she says, and then he's like, or maybe it was Jason Voorhees. <laughs> right? Yeah. 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 <laughs> the only two plausible explanations yeah. are <laughs> a Jason Voorhees or a bear. Yeah, we're in the middle of the woods in an RV. Our power is plugged into something and the power goes out. We pull up the drop down menu of our choices and it's either Bear or Jason Voorhees. And uh, later on, there is a recurring character in a little girl who kind of represents the uh, uh, the other thing that divulges in part six is the actual campers themselves in this movie are very young. They're yeah. little kids. Uh, and earlier installments, there were campers, but there were preteens at best or teenagers. Uh, and this one, they're little kids. And they're kind of, you know, uh, represented by this little girl who tellingly uh, has a little nighty on uh, that has a big bear in it coincidence i think not i think not john (laughs) well but the the evidence show that interestingly i mean that does that's one of the things again from my earliest viewings of this that's always stuck with me probably because i was closer in age to the the campers than i was to uh, any of the the so-called counselors um is that don't be a hater Vic. they tried look i'm sorry they're incompetent but (laughs) Hide under the bed. Really? Because Jason's not going to find you there. Uh, <laughs> well, what I love about that sequence is uh, the, Garris comes in and tells all the kids, hide under the bed. And then when Megan comes in, all the kids come scampering out from their hiding places. And she tells them, go hide under the bed again. <laughs> again. And, uh, <laughs> and, and, and what's brilliant about that 
uh, about these little campers is a earlier on we see a kid who is sound asleep and he's got uh sartre's uh no exit yes <laughs> that is so, it's brilliant i know and later on, uh, uh, two kids are, are, are discussing their imminent fate because they're convinced that Jason Voorhees is coming to kill them. And one of them says, so uh, I, what were you going to be when you grew up? <laughs> yeah, yeah, what were you going to be if yeah. you grew up? <laughs> and, and in a movie that's very kind of stiff and wooden and scripty, that, that was one of the rare lines that actually landed. I mean, that was great. So yeah. I, I, these kids are actually pretty strong. But what's one of the, to me, one of the most interesting scenes is Jason walking through this dormitory where the kids are all sleeping and stopping by this girl and kneeling over her and really like leaning into her. And she clasps her hands and she begins to pray. And I remember thinking again, even at, at 12 or 13 or, or however old I was the first time I saw this, my impression was that the kids were, were safe in a sense because Jason was remembering being a camper hmm. that he, that, that, you know, that at some point these kids were going to cross this, this pubescent line past which he would just impale them with a, a, a you know, a, a, whatever was handy, whatever yeah. was handy. Exactly. Yeah. The a lightning rod or a, you know, fence post or a machete or whatever. Or a fancy um, corkscrew. Yeah. yeah. But but pre fourteen thirteen, like as long as they didn't have any pubic hair, you know, he was going to give them this pass. But when I was looking into the the history of the film, what I found was that uh, McLaughlin actually he had this weird. Uh, uh, he's a devout Catholic, and there was a weird religious element running through this, and so that for for him, the reason that Jason passes this girl by is that she begins to pray. And well, she... if, if anything is going to turn you into a lifelong Christian is if a zombie serial killer shows up and you pray and he goes away, that's going to do it. <laughs> well, it probably speaks more to my, my secular upbringing that like, I was like, well, I hope he's not sparing her because she's praying and it's just because she's, she's 10. <laughs> Right, right, but and he is a, I, 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 he is a monster. I mean, he's a non-human killing machine monster. You know, my read on that sequence uh, was the fact that they were asleep, and uh, it, the other motif that we have touched on in these podcasts, besides the bear thing, is the fact that Jason Voorhees never murders anybody if they're unconscious or asleep. You know, he really right. wants you to be awake. And uh, that, that that's why I was thinking it. It's like I mean, he comes in and it's a very, you know, on paper, it's a very scary sequence. And, uh, you know, it's very much this kind of campfire. We're scaring campers. They're away from home and they're in a new place. And there's a psycho in the woods and he comes in and he stalks around this room and he very deliberately stomps through this, uh, this space and he passes all those kids. Because they're asleep. They're in slumberland. They're not conscious. And he pauses on the little girl because she's awake and she sees him. You know, very much like Santa Claus. Like, you know, her right. eyes are open and Santa notices. I, you know, I, th- I integrated that idea into my, my childhood psychology to the, gr- to the degree that when I got scared, I pretended to be asleep 
And I would actually like I could I would fall asleep pretending to fall asleep because I thought that that was somehow going to protect me that every you see it in the the Friday, the uh, Nightmare on Elm Street movies as well is like you know even when they're dreaming somebody starts throwing rocks at their window and they get up to see who it is and I was like well that's where you fucked up you know right. what I mean like like yeah. let Freddy Freddy's going to come get me in the bed because I'm just going to be here with my eyes closed because nobody no you know slashers don't seem terribly interested in you as long as you're asleep right. Um, well, that's, I mean, that's yeah, that's a very primal child thing, you know. Like you, I think, I I would imagine that it's entirely universal that kids truly believe that like some horrible thing is just staring at them in their bed, and if they just keep their eyes closed and don't acknowledge it, they're safe. I think we can all relate to that. Yeah. But I want to say that I believe he's distracted, though. Like I'm not 100 percent sure, but I think he turns his head because something happens outside. Someone that's else, a, yeah. I, I, I mean, that's very true. Like, I, I mean, that's kind of the thing is the movie doesn't quite have the courage to, or, or, or the. Well, I like that to, this happens you know, because, yeah, yeah I, 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 it doesn't answer the question right. of what happens when Jason Voorhees leans over a, 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 a small girl. What's going to happen next? I prefer the right, ambiguity of it. Yeah, he is distracted and he goes away. And yeah. uh, th- this is uh, a movie, uh, you know, the other departure about six is this is a movie in which on multiple occasions, Jason is distracted from his current victim. Well, that's a great segue. Else. The last thing I really wanted to talk about, uh, let's get into the ending, but this is part of that. He definitely spares Megan. Like there's yeah. no question about it. He has her face in his hands and we've already seen him just in this movie, crush someone's skull, even though it's not nearly as gory as in uh part four or three, whatever. Yeah. Three. Yeah, part three. We're, we're, uh, the farm boys. eye pops out. Yeah. 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 But he literally just releases her and goes after Tommy because Tommy is calling to him and inciting him. What do you guys make of that? I would say that uh, this is a situation where the filmmakers are extremely cognizant that uh, we're definitely on Megan's side. You know, I, I mean, even though I, I mean, she is, in, for all intents and purposes, she is our final girl. But we also have this weird arc in which we have uh, this protagonist. So we have not one but two characters that we kind of sort of want to protect. And we can threaten them. We can wound them. But, uh, you know, Megan's not going to get killed. I had this thought that there's this there's a hubris about Tommy that he, from the moment he runs into the sheriff's station, is like, Jason just wants to kill me. Like, I'm the one he's looking for. And he says that a bunch of times. And, I, you know, it, you sort of think, like, you, maybe Jason doesn't give a shit about you. Like, he might not even recognize you. <laughs> right. L- l- you know? Like, like you're, 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 uh, little does Tommy know, but he's already, his, his service has already been rendered. Yeah. By by you know uh, the Jason spirit has reached out to him. It's uh, plucked at the mind of this disturbed young man. He has done his duty by resurrecting Jason, and now the evil isn't. Yeah, I, I, I it's not particularly stalking him, but uh, you know I, I did notice that uh, he does call Jason a pussy at one but, point in time. Yeah. Well, which, which is a new one. That's a new one. <laughs> Those closing moments, like that, is when that that idea at least comes to fruition. I don't, I don't particularly buy it, but it works again. Like you said, it's she's our final girl. You know, if you're gonna find a way to uh, 
to, to have her survive, to get out of Jason's claws. Um, that works enough. Again, it speaks to what we've talked about before, competence. Like, it's competent. I understand why Jason let her go, even if I don't especially buy it. You know, what this right. movie has been building to is a showdown between Jason and Tommy Jarvis, and we get that, and it's very satisfying. I mean, it's it's the fire in the water, while nonsensical, lends it this this idea of sort of an epic uh, uh, showdown. Um, yeah. And, and then Megan does get the final, she gets the big cutting his throat with a, with a boat engine, um, you know, whatever she has to do to get away or whatever. Right. Yeah. The yeah. coup de gras. Yeah. We give both of those characters a heroic death from which they come, they return. Uh, they both get a hero moment. I mean, this is a, you know, across the board, this is the first of these movies that feels like it was made by professionals. Yeah. 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 yeah that's why I really like this film. I mean, I think that it's strange to me to, to so truly enjoy and appreciate a Friday the 13th movie that I would say has, no sex, very little <laughs> gore, you know, yeah. and yeah. is also playing with, uh, you know, is tonally, uh, you know, it's, it, it, again, we're, we're not looking at a lot of great suspense set pieces or disturbing stuff. It's just, it's so competent and so kind of just fun that it doesn't have to be what I want from a Friday the 13th movie, even though like, I think it delivers the baseline in the sense that Jason is fucking cool in this movie. So we've got that, but it breaks a lot of rules. It really does. I think that, uh, uh, that would be the true, uh, subtitle of this film is Jason Voorhees is fucking cool. And, (laughs) and I, I, I think, uh, you know, in earlier attempts, like, for instance, three, you know, always kind of chewed on my brain because it felt like, uh, you know, again, like we discussed, there was a condescension there, you know, that, you know, 15 year old boys like that and 15 year old boys are idiots. So we don't have to actually write this movie or, you know, uh, the characters have to be broad and, you know, it's going to be stupid and we don't actually have to direct it, blah, blah, blah. But in this one, in this one, it's like, OK. Our audience are primarily 15-year-old boys. Let's give them an awesome movie to watch. And, yeah, the writing is stiff. Yeah, we get some broad characters. But at the same time, it doesn't feel like they're condescending to the audience. No, Um, no. This is a movie that knows what it's doing and does it well. I do just want to throw out, too, a a couple of things. This is, I find, the the most interesting. And I'm, I'm a little sad that this doesn't exist in any form. But as originally written, apparently... McLaughlin had the end of the movie taking place back at Jason's grave where Martin, the grave digger was going to meet Jason's father. What? Uh, yes. What? Uh, with the, the implication that uh, the, the father who was apparently named Elias um, knew that Jason had been resurrected and had come looking for him um the studio, the studio was not interested in in exploring all this this sort of extra backstory at the end of the movie, and so it all got scrapped. It kind of makes sense in the way that, like, what do we have left in the toy box here? Exactly. You know, I, I, I we've say, we've dealt with Pamela, but 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 Jason at some point clearly had a dad, and we don't know what's up with that character. Yes. So it makes a lot of sense to bring him back in at some point. Mm-hmm. 
if I were to wave my magic wand and I was creatively involved in a uh, Friday the 13th movie, I would explore uh, his father. I would explore the Christie family, yeah. who's mentioned in one and two and then subsequently dropped. Uh, and uh, due to the fact that I am Voorhees, from what I recall, is a, is a Dutch name, I would make his father like a Dutch warlock or something. The ending of this film is one of the things, like, from a childhood perspective that really sold me on Jason Voorhees. Because I don't know that he would mean what he means to me if there wasn't this portion that spans at least a couple of films where it's the idea that he's this guy chained up in the bottom of a lake. Yeah. Oh, dude, I, I will have to say, I, you know, if there's one image that I take away from this franchise as a whole that I find to be truly frightening yeah. is the idea of Jason Voorhees chained to the, you know, a zombie psycho killer chained to a rock at the bottom of this haunted lake. I, I mean, that's as fucking horror and metal as it gets, man. It's amazing. You know? Yeah, I mean, it, it's... It's funny that it took six films to get here, and it's outside of the core four, you know. But I mean, it feels like, uh, yeah, th- th- this is in some ways more quintessential than anything else. I mean, like, but it's also it just ties it together because it's yeah. Crystal Lake. It's where he right. drowned. Like, it, yeah. it's not just that he happens to be at the bottom of a lake. It's yeah. this lake. Yeah, it, it, it's the fact that, you know, everyone understands that uh, magic, even if it's dark magic, uh, has its own kind of set of rules that are very fairy tale-ish. You know what I mean? Uh, the idea that uh, if, if something has a dramatic sensibility, then that's the thing that will work. And if we're going to defeat a villain who's become as powerful as, like, say, Dracula or Frankenstein, then we have to do something that feels epic and uh, dramatically at a storytelling level satisfying. It's yeah. also great that like we break out of the pretense of, well, he's not coming back from that. Like this time he got this or that wound. And so he's dead in this movie. It's just clearly just put him on ice. Like he's that's all you can wait. do. It is a very successful film. Uh, it is not the scariest film in the franchise by a sight. Um, Again, the, the, the meta humor is something that we just, I feel like we hadn't seen before. I can't, again, I, I was too young at the time to really dig into that. But when I look at the other sort of genre films that were, that were out at the time, you talk about Aliens, you talk about The Fly, uh, Deadly Friend, um, nothing really touches on that to the degree of, again, the girl with, with Tony Goldwyn when they see Jason standing there and she says, I've seen enough horror movies to know that a guy right. in a mask is bad news. Right. Or the, the Yeah, it's the, very proto Wes Craven. Exactly. Yeah. It's it's there's there's a lot of scream in here before there was scream and that's that's enough to hang its hat on in addition to getting back to what made the franchise successful in the first place, uh bringing back Jason Voorhees um and 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 really owning what he's become uh, again, not just within the context of the movie, but outside the context of the movie, what it's become in the culture. Uh, you know, that it's, movies like this acknowledge that Mike will see a, a uh, you know, a, a billboard for the Los Angeles Kings and immediately think of Friday the 13th. Um, this movie says, we know that 
that that's the case and we're going to we're going to let you in on the joke and i think that that helps that makes a big difference it was especially in the you know in the relief of the the fifth film um this stands head and shoulders i think it's it's maybe the best film beyond the first two building on that thought is the idea that i mean this this is a movie that's extraordinarily aware of who's going to be watching it and why and who those people are and uh, i mean unlike in three uh where it felt like we're gonna you know condescend to that audience uh in this movie it feels like we're gonna give them something that's fucking awesome because they get it it. like the filmmakers appreciate the same things that we appreciate yeah but i i I, mean so it's like it's a zombie who hacks up people with a machete and he's got cool mask and he does cool stuff and he strikes cool poses and we've got heavy you know this is the first of the friday the 13th movies in which heavy metal is involved so then they're like you know they're 50 year old kids they're like they like metal. They like horror. We're gonna make these kids go nuts. You know, I uh, the only weird thing is that it's so fucking chaste, which is bizarre to me. Um, but well, I almost we wonder, just it, found out about the Christian writer director. So yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I exactly. I, I it is that 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 kind of almost Christian sensibility where it's like I mean, everyone's gonna lose their mind over a nipple. But we can watch three people get their heads hacked off in one swipe. And yeah, there was time. no you know, servicing like, that aspect of the audience. Like, not a single glimmer of cheesecake in this film. And that right. clearly comes from the director. Right. So, I, I mean, you can say that, like, this kind of dialing down of the romantic element uh, makes this, like, an almost, you know, strictly male uh, movie. But at the same time, we have this this final girl who's probably the one of the, easily one of the best of the franchise you know she's easily the be- one of the best of the franchise and maybe the best of the franchise I and mean, she's sexy as hell i mean yeah, make no a, mistake she's a beautiful girl she's an excellent actress and uh she's just a really fun cool character to watch uh go about her business so i, I mean what is that actress's name did we ever dig that up what was that yeah I I did look at it. I do just want to point out, talking about the the director's uh, uh, Catholic upbringing and everything else. His next feature film was 1987's Date with an Angel. Oh, yeah, tells you something. (laughs) Jennifer Uh, Cook is her name. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Well, I I I will point out that I mean Scott Derrickson did a uh, Hellraiser movie, and uh, which is actually probably the best of the direct-to-video Hellraiser uh, sequels. Which one did he do? He did, I want to say six. Uh, it's the one with the detective. And I, 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 it's basically a direct video version of Angel Heart with Hellraiser stuff in it, but it's actually really good. I would be remiss if I didn't mention one of the actors in this film, Vincent Guastafaro, who is one of the, the main deputy guy that gets yeah. locked in the cell. Yeah. Uh, tons of credits. I remember him from The Hidden when I was a kid, but oh. he's done a lot of like um, uh, David Mamet films. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, I did like, I, I, he did bring like an interesting extra spice to that scene in which uh, Megan breaks Tommy out of the cell, which is, I, I, it's basically just like a, a 
I mean, it's basically a beat from like a Western, you know what I mean? Uh, yeah. where they kind of, uh, but in his case, like he's got the laser sight and he's got these kooky lines. Like you kind of feel like he secretly loves Megan, you know, yeah, uh, yeah. There's, there's, there's a reproachful, it's, it felt like, you know, the actor was bringing an extra layer of subtext to what he was doing. And I mean, given the fact that I mean, John, that you brought up that he's got all this experience, I'm not surprised at all. It's it's interesting. You're right. It actually is. It's it's almost directly correlates to the scene in Unforgiven with uh, uh, when English Bob is in the cell and uh, the yeah, writer yeah, yeah. is going to give is going to give him the gun and and Gene right. Hackman's like no 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 give it to him. It's a great. You're right. It's, it's it is straight out of a western. It's very interesting. Yeah, I, I, it feels like something that you would see in like say a John Ford movie. You know, yeah. uh, or you know, there's the, a the... lot of western elements in this film. I think that... Which makes sense. I, I, you know, the power of Westerns is the fact that, you know, these characters are out in the middle of nowhere and you kind of have to create your own justice, you know. And, uh, you know, that's the thing with horror movies is, uh, you know, they deal with the same sense of isolation. All right. Yep. Well, I don't think this guy actually was in The Hidden, but two people who were just for, um, you know, those of you who like trivia. Danny Trejo is in The Hidden and so is Lynn Shea. The uh, actress what? in the yes in all of these uh, insidious films. Huh. So. Very, that that is that is an interesting bit of trivia, John. Well, I think that's a great point to go out on. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, the, the moment you bring up Danny Trejo, it's just like, all right, we're done. <laughs> toss the mic to the stage yeah, and walk drop out. The mic. Yeah. Yep. Well, All right, I, fellas. This this is uh, you know uh, it, it's funny that Friday the Thirteenth is is weirdly uh, like Star Trek, where it's like two, four, and six. You know, are the the, the really good ones. Uh, and uh, you know, I, I, I at the end of the day, it's a good movie. It's a fun movie to watch with your friends. Absolutely, well I really put, enjoy sir. this film. All right, well, we'll see you next time for one of my favorites when I was a kid, uh, Part 7. It, uh, it's got some quality kills, gentlemen, so it's going to be entertaining. Part 7 does, in fact, have one of the best kills in this entire franchise, so I am definitely looking forward. So I hope you guys, everyone listening, snuggle up in your sleeping bags and uh, watch it. <laughs> see you next time. All right. <laughs> Take it easy, guys. <laughs>